set fire on the mountain, burning out of control. The sky is set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet, archived at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure, and brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224-9111. Well, my good buddy, Chris Ryan, who often joins me here on Off the Record in this opening segment, is in warmer climes. He's enjoying the weather down in Florida where baseball season has begun. And if it's baseball season, well, that's where you're going to find Chris Ryan. So he's not joining me today, but I am joined by the irrepressible, the garrulous, the good-looking, and the slightly out-of-breath John Bressler. John, welcome to Off the Record. Thank you, Paul. Quite an introduction. Quite an introduction. Take a deep breath, and here we go. So, John... I want to ask a question of you. Democrats in the House of Representatives are celebrating diversity. They're celebrating an influx of new members. They're celebrating an influx of a progressive spirit from a lot of new members. There are more women. There are more persons of color. uh, There are more uh, ethnicities and religious points of view. being heard in the Democratic Party, and you can look at pictures of the members of the House of Representatives, where I proudly served, and and you can honestly say that the Democratic Party looks more like America than the other side of the aisle, which tends to be a bunch of old white men in gray and blue suits. Pale, stale, and male. Pale, stale, and male. I, that's, I, I like that a lot. Pale, stale, and male. So, However, there are real tensions that seem to be breaking out among Democrats. And uh, some, uh, some are, are challenging orthodoxy in unorthodox ways that are creating problems for the leadership, issues uh, for Democrats, issues that Republicans seem to want to take uh, advantage of. I'll give you an example. Uh, There's long been the idea that support for the state of Israel was a bipartisan issue, that support for the state of Israel did not separate Democrats and Republicans. Now, as uh, Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu, um, and the Israeli government has tilted further to the right, um, uh, progressives in the Democratic Party 
have looked at uh, Israeli government policies vis-a-vis the Palestinians and have been seeing real problems. What the progress, a lot of the far left progressive communities say is uh, Israel is simply occupying space. They're acting as occupiers and oppressors. Uh, There's no movement towards a two-state solution. In fact, there's only a movement away from it. And one of the strongest voices in the United States in support of hardline Israeli policies, a hardline right-wing Israeli policies, has been uh, APAC, the American-Israel uh, Political uh, Affairs Committee. Uh, and it's a powerful, powerful, powerful organization. Um, I will tell you, when I was in Congress, um, I, I am a... Uh, I'm culturally Jewish. I call myself a delicatessen Jew. And uh, I went on an APAC-sponsored trip, um, following all the proper procedures, of course, to, to, to make those payments. But I went on an APAC-sponsored trip, and I uh, visited Israel um, and got a really good sense of what the Israelis confront every single day. So here's my question. With Representative Omar, a Muslim American from the Twin Cities in the Midwest, making controversial statements about APAC uh, and the uh, nation's support for Israel, what's a good Democrat to do? How do we make sense of all this? Well, the first thing I would say is that um, APAC traditionally had been an organization that never really cared who was in the White House, only that there would be strong military support for the state of Israel. However, under Netanyahu, they've literally become a lobbying arm for the Likud party. And we saw this pretty clearly when John Boehner circumvented the White House and let Netanyahu speak to a joint session of Congress. Well, that that was a that was a particular that was a particular slap in the face to President Obama. A lot of people now believe that APAC, um, which used to be bipartisan and has become really uh, a handmaiden of a hard right um, Republican Party, um, who have taken up uh, the hard right policies of Israel to the detriment of the peace process, and that uh, in cooperation with APAC, that uh, the real prospects for peace have not been advanced, that bipartisan uh, support has been threatened, and that uh, real dialogue or discussion about the best way to achieve peace and security for Israel has been stifled. I... um don't disagree with those remarks. I believe that on the one hand, we should not let the remarks of Representative Omar pass without comment. On the other hand, we can agree that the policies of the Netanyahu government, not unlike some of the policies of our current government in the United States, have elicited responses that they are racist. So I think there's a learning process going on with the new, more diverse Congress, and it's a process that goes both ways. There are new ideas. There are older uh, habits and patterns of how government runs. I think that Representative Omar 
uh, has a voice that needs to be heard in this Congress. I also think she needs to understand that sometimes her comments have been insensitive. So where we make common cause is over policies that say all stereotyping is vile, and we need to take case by case uh, each situation. She should not be threatened for her ethnicity or race, but nor should the oldest canards uh, of anti-Semitism about dual loyalty and the corruption of Jewish money go unchallenged. Well, I mean, you know, she and uh, it's un, unfortunately the those canards were raised by a a young female Muslim legislator who's um, new to the rough and tumble of American politics and who may not be quite used to the fishbowl that she now um, has been put in where remarks are amplified. Remarks also can be twisted. As you say, the larger point is, um, and it seems to have been on the rise ever since Donald Trump came into office, and it's not seems, statistically, hate crimes and anti-Semitism have exploded in this country since Donald Trump, the enabler-in-chief of white supremacist, racist uh intolerance um, has looked the other way and basically given tacit approval to white supremacists and racists and anti-Semites. His uh, extraordinary lack of empathy, his extraordinary lack of sensitivity to issues of anti-Semitism and white supremacy have fostered an atmosphere in this country that is toxic, that is dangerous, and that has produced terrible, terrible consequences for not just Jews, uh, but others in this country. I I would say the response to Omar, though, from the Jewish community has to be seen through the lens of Nazis marching in Charlottesville, a woman getting killed and run over Heather Heyer in Charlottesville, uh, and the slaughter in the synagogue in Pittsburgh just four months ago. I mean, news events move so fast, it seems like forever ago. But to bring it home to Concord, where threats were made on the dark web towards the rabbi of the local reform congregation, and our congregation was visited by the local police and given information from our national security uh, folks that we better lock our doors because the threats against us are real. This is harrowing. And therefore, there's a heightened sensitivity among Jews, not only in the United States, but worldwide. That anti-Semitism is on the rise, on the left and the right. And therefore, the response to Representative Omar needs to be seen, I think, in light of that heightened sensitivity. Um, However, I am hoping, and I believe that this is a teaching moment, this is what we look like in America. We're not this or that. We are everything. And we better learn to respect each other more. We better learn to extend the exact same rights of freedom of speech. For instance, a question really comes up uh, on the First Amendment when you can give a gag order or when the leaders in Congress can tell one of their own, you can't say these words. 
So it, I think it's a helpful conversation, actually. I'm in the camp that disagrees with what Representative Omar said, but fights to the death to support her right to say it, meaning she shouldn't be censured and lose her position on a committee. She needs to be part of a broader conversation. Her office has responded uh, to a request for information from New York Times about her support for the BDS movement, which appears to point only to the Palestinians as an aggrieved party and therefore eventually would like to see a one-state Israel. Uh, However, in response to follow-ups on that question, her office also said, we support a two-state solution. So there's a lot of um, shifting of positions and uncertainty. But what I think is clear is that we're at a moment we have to confront the issues in our country with our best values of openness, freedom of speech, and respect, which is really lacking in our political dialogue. Tolerance of the diversity that is America is one of the most significant challenges we face uh, in terms of uh, getting back to the basics of what our founders uh, wrote in our founding documents, the moral and ethical and spiritual foundations of democracy, a radical experiment uh, at the time in the 1700s, a radical experiment, a diversion uh, from the traditional view that kings ruled by divine right. The idea that every person had a vote, that every person should have equal opportunity, that every person uh, was equal before the law, that uh, the Considered right, innocent uh, until proven guilty. The right of people to speak their minds freely without, uh, without a fear of repercussion. Those principles... And not ensure, to be subject to illegal search and seizure by the Crown. All of those principles enshrined in our founding documents are the basics of a democracy which cries out for respect. Q will I am. Tolerance of diversity, which is a challenge when there is amoral, amoral, immoral leadership at the top. Because if ever there was a moment for uh, the White House, for a president to lead on the issue of tolerance of diversity, to, to respect the right of people to disagree, even when the speech is not favored, but the right of people to disagree and to be open and tolerant in our society. If ever there was a moment when we needed a moral foundation restored in the White House, it is now. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, archived at nhtalkradio.com, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour and call 224-9111. Don't go away. We'll be back with more Off the Record after this. 
Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet and archived for your binge listening pleasure at nhtalkradio.com. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community, designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224-9111. I'm really pleased to be joined today by my good friend, Matt Robeson. He is the proprietor and author of AmorePerfectUnion.com, a sensational blog about what's really going on in our politics and in our governance. He talks about issues that really scratch way down beneath the surface. Most of what you get from most blogs and most pundits is really superficial. Matt gets what's going on underneath. Matt, welcome back to Off the Record. Paul, thanks so much. Great to talk to you. So, a recent blog talked about three things that Democrats should not do. And you and I have talked in the past about Democrats at a pretty deep level, what what Democrats stand for, what the values are, but how it is that they somehow often get messages wrong and can't quite communicate uh, what what needs to be communicated, and we're in a pretty startling time. I mean, it's we're in a shocking period of American history where the American voter, the American electorate, one way or another, has elected Donald Trump as president of the United States. We've suffered through two years of this catastrophe with our institutions undermined, yet his polls continue to keep him, uh, you know, they they're, seem to be going back up there. Uh, despite all the scandal that surrounds uh, his office, he seems to be in the high 40s at this point. What are Democrats to do and what are Democrats not to do? Great question. And it's something uh, I've been worried about uh, recently and I think is increasingly going to be on the minds of Democrats as they look at the emerging field of presidential contenders uh, and as the rest of the cycle picks up. But the action will clearly be in the presidential contest. You know, I approached this question by deciding, first of all, that there was no sure way to lose friends among Democrats than try and tell them what they should do or who they should vote for. Uh, Seems like a prescription for disaster, but... I did end up with a few thoughts on things that maybe Democrats could collectively agree to avoid doing um, for the for the next two years, and I came up with three. Um, the first one really being not to misread the chances of winning in 2020 and think that beating President Trump is going to be a slam dunk. Um, I think that there is a ton of evidence that this is going to be a lot harder than Democrats are currently reckoning on. I, I, what's your sense? Do you, do you feel like, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is lost, cause, never going to win, and 1 is this, is this is going to be easy, where would you put 2020 for Democrats right now? You know, I'd, I'd, uh, if 10 is a lost cause, I'd kind of put it at 5 or 6, I think. Um, maybe edging more towards six. And I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. 
first of all, uh, and, and these are not necessarily in order of priority, but with even given all the scandals surrounding uh, Trump and his cronies, uh, the economy is doing pretty well. Uh, the stock market, which had taken a dive, and while it's no indicator of the economy, is in some ways uh, an indicator of confidence uh, or happiness or or something. Um, the stock market has sort of resumed a slower but still uphill climb. And uh, in general, the economy uh, seems to be humming along okay. And uh, the counter I see to that is if um, folks, uh, working folks and middle class folks um, come to realize what the Republican tax cuts really meant for them, and a lot of folks are just beginning to see that uh, uh, the tax cuts didn't seem to be much of a favor to the middle class, that's some counter. But overall, uh, when people are sitting around their kitchen tables right now, the economy uh, doesn't appear to be collapsing. In fact, it seems to be doing pretty well. So that's number one. Number two, uh, a lot of us feared that um, uh, that we would have immediate foreign policy catastrophes and disasters uh, with Donald Trump. And he has uh, taken a, a very odd, um, some including me, think an unpatriotic turn with his affection for dictators of all stripes. However, there have been so far, uh, up to today, no cataclysmic foreign policy disasters. He's dissed our allies. He has cozied up to to uh, killers, murderers, and thugs, but it hasn't produced a terrible foreign policy disaster for us so far. And in fact, um, many in the United States may support his policy of taking troops out of Syria, um, uh, slowing slowing troops uh, troop withdrawals in Afghanistan, and a kind of more isolationist approach that he has taken rather than an aggressive approach. And for all the for so far, for, uh, you know, I mean, for all the name calling in of, with North Korea. Uh, which remains a huge problem. And for all uh, the criticism he's taken so far, no foreign policy disaster, and we're not in a nuclear war. So that's number two. You've got an economy that's working. You've got no foreign policy disasters. And then you have a, a crowded and some would say quite split and increasingly split uh, democratic field where it looks like there's all kinds of infighting going in at all kinds of levels. And the Democrats are having, at least in the early stages of this primary, and not so much among the primary candidates, but in the uh, on Capitol Hill, a lot of uh, problems or a lot of issues around conflicts, ideological conflicts in the Democratic Party with a lot of newcomers uh, who are very assertive and very loud, um, and a lot of establishment folks who uh, are trying to keep the lid on. So those three things, uh, at, at least, seem to bode um, pretty well for a first-term president with a 46 or 7% approval rating, even though it's under 50, um, maybe hanging on for a second term. Right. So I, I think your reasoning is very strong. It matches a lot of my own thinking. And 
what I'm seeing, and let me just throw a few numbers to you and, and, and your listeners here. Um, recent polling shows that almost 80% of Democrats think that this is going to be a slam dunk, that Donald Trump is very unlikely to be reelected. Right there in New Hampshire, a recent poll from the St. Anselm Polling Center, great polling outfit. Uh, we know uh, that team very well. 84% of New Hampshire Democrats think that it's unlikely that the president will be reelected. So um, that doesn't seem to be lining up with, with your read and my read of the situation. Um, but I, I do think the numbers, I do think history kind of bears out your analysis, that kind of five or six is going to be a lot harder than it looks. I mean, first of all, if you go back historically over the last uh, six or seven presidential cycles, look at this stage of the cycle in 1980 and 1992 you had an incumbent president that polling showed most americans wanted to reelect, and both of those presidents went on to lose in 1984 1996 and 2012 you had a president that the american public said we do not want to reelect uh, by majority and those presidents went on to win and you know in fact that kind of dynamic i think has been uh, growing and accentuated over the last 25 years or so as we've separated and polarized uh, along party lines, that as you go down the stretch uh, in campaigns, however they look at this stage of the game, there's a natural tightening. That's exactly what's happened in 14 out of the last 16 presidential elections. The polling margins have gotten tighter and tighter as you go. So as you say, um, for the last year, despite everything, despite all of the things that drive Democrats crazy and make them think that uh, there's no possible way that the president could be reelected, his average approval rating has appeared to have a floor of about 40%. As you say, it's, it's been creeping up. It does not take much more growth, uh, especially when you look at the Electoral College and uh, the key swing states that he needs to win. It does not take much more growth. Um, for him to win a second term. So I'm on board with you. I think that uh, the prospects are a lot tougher than most Democrats seem to be reckoning on as of today. Uh, and uh, let's not forget those beautiful red hats. Make America great again. I mean, who doesn't want to make America great again? I mean, if you're a Democrat, you know, be, be, besides thinking about the the awful derivation uh, from from uh, days of uh, fascism and and white supremacy. But putting all that aside, since we have such short memories, who doesn't want to make America great again? Um, and there is a large swath of the country, including a large swath in New Hampshire, who um, uh, feel pretty strongly about Donald Trump, and they're willing to put aside his all of his personal peccadilloes to say, you know, I mean, he's uh, he's the guy. Apparently, he's done a great job at uniting the Republican Party. More than 80 percent of folks who identify as Republicans are supporting Donald Trump. There, There isn't a lot of question on the right so far about who their candidate is going to be. And um, the president is not going to have to suffer a, a huge and fractured primary. So far, it looks like only former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld uh, is thinking of mounting any kind of challenge from the uh, center-right to uh, Donald Trump 
and whatever you, where, whichever box you might put Trump in, it's always hard hard to tell uh, whether or not uh, he fits in any box. Which is which is one of the most fascinating things about uh, a president who seems to have whose only ideology is opportunism, convenience, and what fits into 240 characters. Well, I think that's a really astute point. It's actually not one of the the three uh, don'ts that I put into that piece that you referenced. Um, but it is that that is a really good point. One of the things that uh, we talked about last time is it's been very well documented that over the last 40 years, the Republican Party has gone through a process where moderates have really been pushed out of the party. And you can see it in the voting patterns of Republican members of Congress, regardless of whether they're in swing seats or in safe Republican seats, whether they identify themselves as moderates politically or very conservative, they all vote the same way. They're fairly homogenous in terms of their policy positions and their political leanings. The difference with the Democrats is that the Democratic Party is a much bigger tent. There is a much greater diversity of views, not to mention you know, socioeconomic diversity. There's a much greater diversity of views. And that could be a relative advantage. That could be a, an act of political jujitsu for Democrats to make the Democratic Party um, a welcoming landing spot uh, for a broader swath of voters. Um, but as you say, right now, Democrats at this phase um, have been a little bit more inwardly focused, the old Democratic circular firing squad, especially when it comes to issues of identity politics um, and policy positions. Uh, and that is playing right into uh, Republican hands. Uh, when it comes to the larger strategic arc of shaping the 2020 cycle. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes. We're talking with Matt Robeson um, about his uh, blog uh, and his thoughts about what Democrats should not do. We're going to take a short break. We're brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. Join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224-9111. We'll be back with more of Off the Record in just a few moments. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com and brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224-9111. We're talking with Matt Robeson, an astute political observer. Matt, uh, how can folks uh, find your blog online? It's at a moreperfectunionforum.com. Um, had to add the word forum uh, to avoid confusion among people who might think that it is a wedding website if I just called it Perfect Union. <laughs> uh, so a moreperfectunionforum.com. So we talked about issue number one for Democrats. Don't get complacent and uh, don't fool dem ourselves democrats into thinking that donald trump is going to be an easy target because he's not that's that's the number one of what democrats shouldn't do what about two and three well 
the risk of number one is that it leads you right down the road to number two and number three. Um, number two being an assumption because you think you're on relatively safe political ground, because you think that the likelihood of winning with any candidate um, is so high that you allow yourself as a party collectively um, to go as far left as you like, either in terms of tone or policy prescription. Um, and look, you know, you and I have talked previously about the fact that um, it, there's this voting pattern. You can see this dynamic among Democrats that the more safe they think they are in the next election, the more liberal their policy positioning becomes. That same dynamic is true of voters with the Democratic Party writ large. Um, now, look, there is a vein of thought in progressive circles uh, among Democratic strategists that this isn't a bad thing, that going left is a strategic choice. It's a, it's a good idea, um, either because they cite the popularity of uh, progressive policy proposals or because uh, it's a way to incite uh, activists on the left uh, and get your base fired up. I think both of those uh, reasons are flawed. Um, if you look at the policy end, you know, you can find out there a raft of polling that shows ideas like the Green New Deal or Medicare for All, uh, Free College for All are at 80% popularity, 70%, 60% popularity. And as soon as you inform voters with any negative messaging or even any nuance, all of those numbers just fall through the floor. Um, they just completely fall apart. Um, and it, it really goes to show that it's very easy to delude oneself into thinking that, you know, from a high level, some of these ideas are, are going to be a strategic asset to you. Really, they're much less so. Hmm. You know, I just read an interesting article. Uh, I think it was in... The New York Times by a professor named Tony Wu pointing out the fact that there seemed to be broad agreement across the political spectrum on all kinds of policies which you might call liberal or progressive, that approval of those policies uh, was easily in the 60s or high 50s or low 70s, and that uh, there was this broad agreement across the spectrum about all kinds of policy issues which seemed to favor Democrats. And his argument was the electorate isn't so much split as it is simply been oppressed by both parties and the dysfunction of the political system, which has not answered the uh, what the electorate or voters really want with policies, but has managed to so gum up the works uh, that nothing gets done to answer the electorate and then uh, the electorate's real concerns. Um, and then you end up with a Donald Trump. It's, it's you know, for, if you put a partisan hat on, which I can easily do, and you say, yeah, you know, the Republican strategy has been to make things so awful that uh, the voters hate all politicians and all politics and they uh, reject everybody and uh, without being able to... Um, to uh, look at this, they um, they simply 
uh, don't don't distinguish between the parties and what they offer, and they just are are completely uh, uh, disenfranchised from all politics and into the vacuum uh, created a guy like Donald Trump or the Republicans can can walk. I don't know even if true. Uh, I'm not sure that it it is any kind of argument against what you're saying. But you also have to deal with the fact that uh, for a lot of Democrats, uh, going left is simply returning to the fundamentals of where they believe a party which uh, stands for uh, equal opportunity for all and the the strength of people who work and the dignity of work as opposed to the to the adva- the opportunity the advantages of wealth um, uh, need to get back to that it's a, a return to the basics of democratic values which a lot of Democrats are simply more comfortable with you know I think there's a lot of truth in that argument there's a lot to unpack in that I think one of the things you're putting your finger on is the practical reality of what happens in an election, what happens when uh, different political messages uh, kind of get thrown at voters. Um, and you're right. There is a little bit of a, you know, it's a plague on both their houses effect where voters are inundated with frequently negative messaging uh, from both sides. And uh, it, it, it does lead to uh, it may, being very hard for voters to discern, you know, the sort of the, some of the true differences. The fact does remain that, you know, just taking examples of, you know, of any of these currently popular uh, policy proposals in, in Democratic circles, um, that when you do, you know, in polling, one of the things you can do is you can present an initial idea. Green New Deal, do you like it or do you not? Um, and that can tell you something. But then you do an informed voter test where you give them a little bit more information. It might be balanced information. It might be the kinds of things that they would hear in a campaign, the kinds of attacks that they would hear. And that's where you see this trajectory, just, again, taking, um, taking support for Medicare for All, for example. An initial ballot test finds it at 70%. So it really seems to fit into the point that, that you were reading there. Gosh, this, this seems to be something that voters really broadly support this this could be a huge political asset for progressives but when you inform um voters that um uh, it's the same thing essentially as single payer well then you know support drops to 48 percent. well that's pretty good it doesn't seem like quite as much of a of a home run uh and then when you introduce the likely republican attack that medicare for all would probably lead to a tax increase whether or not it will, um, the support drops to 34%. So it just goes to show, uh, from a policy perspective, I'm a Democrat. I happen to like a lot of what's in uh, a lot of these proposals. But from a political strategy standpoint, uh, the answer is just a lot more nuanced. It's true. So let's talk about number three. I want to make sure we get all the discussion we need to have in before we have to go off the air. We've got about uh, five minutes left. So let's talk about number three. We hit number two. Let's go to number three. Well, number three is just making sure to understand how voters make decisions and, and, and 
called persuasion happens. Um, there's a very useful acronym uh, introduced by this Harvard professor, Gary Oren, um, who teaches persuasion. The acronym is CARD, C-A-R-D, Conversion, Activation, Reinforcement, and Deactivation. Those are the four forces that lead to persuasion. And most people assume that persuasion, when you, when you use the word persuasion in common discussion, you think it means, well, you believe X, but I persuade you to change your mind, and now you believe Y. People tend to assume that that's what happens in politics, that you're a Trump supporter, but I convince you instead this time that you're going to vote for uh, fill-in-the-blank uh, Kamala Harris, uh, for example. The reality, and you can you know, hash through this on the last piece, I, I present some numbers behind this, is that most persuasion is actually the ARD. It's activation, reinforcement, or deactivation. It's very rare to make people's views take a complete 180. And that, I think, is going to be the dominant mechanism in 2020 as well. This is going to be about activation, reinforcement, and deactivation. And the key there for Democrats is that the challenge of activating Democrats to be motivated to beat Donald Trump is not that high. Democrats are plenty motivated to beat the president. In polling, it's very clear that it's their number one priority, consistently about 60%, say that it's much more important to them to beat Donald Trump than to have a candidate for president on the Democratic side who agrees with their policy position. So the key for Democrats is going to be not activating progressives. It's going to be deactivating Republicans, Republican moderates, Republican voters who may or may not show up. Every time President Trump is able to turn this into an apocalyptic, Armageddon, fear-laden contest, um, every time this is a, a kind of uh, another caravan uh, discussion. Think about it that this way. He's winning. Every time we're able to present Democrats as an alternative that's not that scary, um, Democrats are winning. So that's the, that's the third worry, is a misunderstanding of the mechanism by which voters uh, make choices is going to lead us to try and uh, hammer through um, democratic and progressive ideas um, that are a little bit too far to the left um, and not work with voters um, and, and present more uh, palatable uh, uh, options. Well, it's going to be a, a, a really interesting primary, certainly in New Hampshire and in many places uh, around the country as we go, uh, with more candidates getting in and some of the candidates expected to get in uh, staying out, uh, but and there certainly is a lot of um, uh, nibbling around the edges of policy going on. I, I'm not sure what Democrats are going to end up saying uh, they really want. Uh, MSNBC recently uh, was talking about Joe Biden getting in, and um, uh, with Joe Biden possibly uh, getting in the race, you've got somebody who's seen as a moderate who can uh, bridge various gaps, and there's a wide spectrum of more progressive candidates. So Democrats are going to have a very, very interesting time and a kind of uh, a, a challenge not to eat each other alive in the primary, to be able to come together 
when an eventual nominee is chosen. And we saw in uh, 2016 how challenging that was when you had an establishment candidate and a progressive left-wing candidate um, with um, a huge respective bases um, going at each other and apparently still going at each other, although Lord knows Lord knows why and, and to what effect. So I think you raise really important points, Matt, and thanks for joining us here on Off the Record with Paul Hodes. Um, tell us again how we can find your blog on the Internet. A moreperfectunionforum.com. And, Paul, thanks again for having me and uh, looking forward to seeing how things unfold in the coming months. We'll talk again soon. We're going to do this on a regular basis because I think you're just one of the smartest people I know. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour, celebrate life at the Birches by calling 224 224- 9111. Don't go away. We'll be back to wrap up Off the Record after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet, brought to you by the Birches at Concord, New Hampshire's first assisted living community designed specifically for those living with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other forms of memory impairment. You can join a tour and celebrate life at the Birches by calling 2249111. Well, this was really one of the more interesting shows, I think. I've ever been able to have. My good friend John Bressler and I talked about recent controversies in the Democratic Party over remarks, intolerant remarks made by Representative Omar of Minneapolis. And then Matt Robeson and I dug deep into uh, what's going on underneath in the Democratic Party coming up to 2020. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I thank my great sponsor, the Birches at Concord. I thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM. The sky is set ablaze in all its red and gold The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot We gotta turn this ship around Before we run aground We gotta turn this ship around Before we run aground